0: Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, Guns, Opportunities, and Gender. The date, December 2020. My name is Belle Lavis. Being a medieval warrior, whether in Europe, China, or Japan, took two things. First, one had to have the money to get the stuff, or kit, as a warrior might say. Writing for the Metropolitan Museum... Page author Dirk H. Breeding states, quote, It is true that unless looted from a battlefield or won in a tournament, the acquisition of armor would have been a costly affair, Second, the necessary skill to be proficient with a sword, shield, mace, axe, and knife took much time. Only someone with the leisure to avoid bringing in a harvest or milk a cow had that kind of time. Then adding in the necessary skills to do all of this in a formation with other warriors required years of practice and training. And finally, many of these warriors would fight from horseback. So, add in the cost of the steed and the time to learn to control a 1,500-pound animal. Not just anyone could be such a proficient warrior. Knights never fought entirely alone, breeding adds, quote, during a campaign, a knight depended on a small host of retainers, squires, and attendants who lent armed support and looked after his horses, armor, and other equipment, not to mention peasants and craftsmen who made the organization of a feudal society with its warrior class possible in the first place, Unquote. These retainers were also expensive. Retainers had to be quartered and fed, and for every peasant drafted into the army was one more not tending To agriculture. Much of the focus of the Roman Empire's success, the US still needs to be around another 200 years old to match the Romans' longevity, is the Roman legion. Now, the legions themselves get much press, but why did the legions, and not, let's say, the Seleucid elephant, the Macedonian phalanx, or the horse archer, become the dominant military tactic of the ancient world? The answer is relatively simple. A Roman legionnaire's skills were subordinated to training within the context of the Century, the maniple, and the Cohort, and through this tactical focus could be trained in less than five months. The average legionnaire was not taught sword skills as an individual, but rather to fight as a unit. Additionally, the gear standardization, which included basic armor, a gladius or short sword, a shield, two pila or spears, and food rations had a democratizing effect on the legions. Later, Spaniards, Africans, and Gauls would all make highly effective legionnaires as good as the original Italians. By comparison, a horse archer took years to learn the archery, much less from the back of a horse, though the devastating effect of the Parthian horse archer told at the Battle of Carrhae in 53 BCE when the Parthians destroyed several Roman legions, the Romans' power still told, as in the later conquests of Emperor Trajan. The horse archer's impact was resurrected in Attila's Huns and later Genghis Khan's Mongols, but it still took years to learn to fire an effective recurve bow from the back of a running horse or pony. Once the Mongols became spread too thin, it was too difficult to teach non-Mongols horseback archery, Thus, Genghis's empire ended after just three generations. Like the legionnaire, the gun democratized warfare. Instead of the years necessary to train medieval or horseback warriors, or even the five months to train a Roman legionnaire, it was now down to weeks to teach a soldier to fire a gun in formation. And of course, now anyone could be a proficient warrior. The gun did not necessarily change the course of warfare overnight. And even before the gun, in the 1300s, the English longbow was a key weapon. And in the 15th and 16th centuries, pikes formed the core of armies, enjoying success over mounted knights. But even the concept of building the muscle strength for the longbow or learning pike formations was still far longer and more complicated than wielding a musket. Though many factors, including the bubonic plague, were causing the decline and end of feudalism, it is not a coincidence that the end of this system began with the democratization of arms. In the modern age class, though still highly prevalent, was not nearly as fixed as it was in the feudal times. In an essay called The Decline of Feudalism, written for Roxbury.org, states, Two quite different armies faced each other at the village, at the French village of Croce in 1346. The French had a feudal army that relied on horse-mounted knights. French knights wore heavy armor that made it difficult to move when not on horseback. Their weapons were sword and lances. Some of the infantry or foot soldiers used crossbows, which were highly effective only at short ranges. In contrast, the English army was composed of lightly armored knights, foot soldiers, and archers armed with longbows. Some soldiers were recruited from the common people and paid to fight, unquote. Though the nobility continued to lead armies through the 18th century, they were no longer the ones who would win the battles by themselves. By the American Civil War, A man like Ulysses S. Grant could lead victorious northern armies. And even in World War I, the non-noble Erich Ludendorff could become generalissimo of the entire German army. It was technological change, not an overt social one, that drove this sea change. And the United States is relatively unique in seeing in the gun a guarantor of liberty. Instead of ceding to the state the right to bear arms, The Second Amendment grants that right to every eligible citizen. Does it work out that way? Well, that is a debate for another time. But the left's inability to address the Second Amendment is telling. And it is not because of a funding issue. The infamous NRA spending on lobbying and political efforts is a fraction of what Democrat Mike Bloomberg spent on political campaigns in just three months, in 2020, in one state, Florida. There is something within the psyche of many Americans that equates gun ownership with liberty. The gun was a technological innovation that changed the whole human system. The advent of technology that converts how most people go about their lives, especially the computer, is also changing a fundamental precept of humanity that dates back to when Homo sapiens began traversing Africa. Today, we have experienced the change called the Information Age and one of the critical aspects of this change is to create opportunities for women. According to Wired Magazine, quote, we live in the information age, a period in human history characterized by the shift from industrial production to one based on information and computerization, unquote. For the first one million years of human existence, survival was predicated on three things. First, early humans needed the ability to procreate in replaceable and plus one terms. Parents, by the necessity of survival, had to be able to create three or more children. Simple math. They had to replace themselves and add one more to grow. Add to this the even more straightforward fact that physical strength of resource creation in a pre-information age environment. Third, A woman in her third trimester is not as physically capable as normal, meaning her resource output in a physical world is even more diminished. And this even lends greater power to the male capable of protecting her and compensating for that diminishment. The ability to move faster and display greater strength and to not have to worry about giving birth to the babies would make males the dominant gender for millennia. This is not to say there have not been highly effective females in history, from Nefertiti and Hypatia in Egypt, to Hildegard of Bingen in Germany, to Catherine the Great of Russia, or Marie Curie of France. History is replete with incredible women, but even these notable figures are secondary to the ability to effectively wield a sword, traverse long distances at speed, and handle a team of oxen on a wheat farm. They are famous not just because of their accomplishments, but because they were outliers. Now, this is not to say that certain women do not possess greater physical strength than certain men. Serena Williams could beat 99.99% of male tennis players, but even here, she cannot beat the top 25 male players. Her average tennis serve speed of 170 kilometers per hour is the best for women. But the top 100 males in tennis serve at 180 kilometers per hour. She even practices with male tennis partners to gain an edge over her female opponents. But this is again, ultimately the realm of physical strength. The information age represents a sea change in that like the gun for poor people, it levels out opportunities by basing success not on physical strength, but intelligence. Look at what has happened with universities. In discussing women enrollment in an article in The Atlantic by Elena Samuels published in 2017, the author notes, quote, this is not unusual. Across socioeconomic classes, women are increasingly enrolling and completing post-secondary education. Well, even as opportunities for people without a college education shrink, Men's graduation rates remain relatively stagnant. In 2017, the most recent year for which data is available, 72.5% of females who had recently graduated high school were enrolled in two-year or four-year colleges compared to 65.8% of men. That's a big difference from 1967 when 50% of recent male high school grads were in college compared to 47.2% of women, unquote. And this trend is not just about affluence or wealthy families sending their daughters to college in more significant numbers. Quote, women from low income and minority families especially have made great strides in recent decades Just 12.4% of men from low-income families who were high school sophomores in 2002 had received a bachelor's degree by 2013 compared to 17.6% of women. And in 2016, 22% of Hispanic women ages 25 to 29 had a bachelor's degree compared to just 16% of Hispanic men, unquote. In a 2019 article in the NPR, writer Dan Mattias states, quote, Women are on track to make up a majority of the college-educated labor force this year, marking a historic turning point in gender parity. While women have made up most college-educated adults for roughly four decades, that strength has not always been reflected in the workforce, where men have traditionally dominated Men still outnumber women as a percentage of U.S. workers, but the gap has narrowed significantly in recent years. In this, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, quote, the educational attainment of women ages 25 to 64 in the labor force rose substantially from 1970 to 2016. In 2016, 42% of these women held a bachelor's degree and higher, compared with 11% in 1970. In 2016, 6% of women had less than a high school diploma, that is, did not graduate from a high school or earn a GED, down from 34% in 1970, unquote. Given that brain, not brawn, has been prevalent for decades, it was a mystery why more women did not break through the glass ceiling, especially as it concerns business. There will be a level of bias and discrimination wherever humans congregate, but business ultimately depends on production and numbers, more so than do other professions. Yet the number of women serving as corporate heads has still been low, until now. In the 1980s, the male-to-female graduation rates gap maintained a consistent 8% gap, even higher by percentage than in the 1950s. But right about the mid-1990s to the mid-2000s, the gap begins to collapse to less than 3%. CEOs tend to assume their duties in their early 50s, considering then a 25-year span. So think about the 25 years between 2020 and the mid-1990s. Those females graduating from business school in the late 1990s and early 2000s would now be at the right age for the C-suite, and this is exactly what is happening. One example is Jane Frazier, 53, who will become the first female CEO of a big six American bank at Citigroup. Another is Mary Barra, CEO of automotive manufacturer General Motors, who took the reins of that company at age 52. The number of women running Fortune 500 companies has hit a record of 37. Yet, given there are, well, 500 companies, that number is still only 7.4%, but compare that with just 20 years ago, in the year 2000, when there were a whopping two female CEOs, or four-tenths of one percent. And there is no indication that that number is going to be going down anytime soon, but rather, given college graduation rates, given the where the B schools are, Given the number of women who are now serving as senior vice presidents or executive vice presidential roles, that number will inevitably go up. The invention of the gun revolutionized not just warfare, but society. It created opportunities, but also obvious dangers and the obvious increase of the use of violence. Overall, the advent of the digital or information age should create massive opportunities But there are still concerns. For example, females are more susceptible to cyberbullying than males, to just name one example. And there will be an effect on males. If many American cultural trends begin in the academy, then females' dominance within the university system is telling. In an article in College Fix by Christian Snyder, the author notes, According to NCES data, 44% of all American women in 2016 between the ages of 18 and 24 were enrolled in degree-granting post-secondary institutions compared to only 39% of all males in the same age group. That same year, 38.9% of all women between the ages of 25 and 34 had a bachelor's degree or higher degree. Only 31.1% of men could say the same, unquote. And on the campus, the gaps are showing that the faculty's makeup within our university system has also followed the student's lead. In 2016, 53% of all employees within the system were female. According to a study by the TIAA Institute, women held only 38.6% of faculty positions in 1993. By 2013, that number had increased to 49.2%. And in the humanities, it was even more pronounced. Quote, in 2015, 61% of all advanced degrees in the humanities, arts, language, history, etc., were earned by women. While men have moved towards higher earning majors, primarily math and technology, women have taken over majors previously dominated by their male colleagues. For instance, in 2017, an in eye popping 68% of journalism bachelor's degrees went to women. Unquote. Yet, the report also noted some demonstrable differences between males and females in their formative years. For one, women develop more quickly, and this maturity allows them to excel during the high school and college levels. On the other hand, boys are more likely to have behavioral problems that lead to disciplinary actions in schools, and in many cases, these behaviors turn criminal, which can derail dreams of attending college. Even when backed by scientific research, pointing out inherent differences between males and females and how those differences affect educational attainment can be controversial. Quote, numerous professors across a wide swath of disciplines were contacted to comment for this story, and none would agree to an interview. One professor referred to the issue as politically charged, unquote. Well, since this blog and podcast is inherently political, I will take a stab. Males tend to be more physical overall, but without physical labor, physical activity to spur them on, they, like women 200 years ago, are now on an unlevel playing field. One result of this from Schneider, quote, For one, greater numbers of young men appear to be losing their taste for employment generally. According to a 2017 NBER working paper, men between the ages of 21 and 30 exhibited a dramatic drop in work hours compared to their older counterparts. The study's data showed these young men shifted their leisure to video gaming and other recreational computer activities in lieu of working." Many women, and not just on the left, are dismissive of these effects. Well, males had their first 5,000 years, and now it's our turn. But that attitude will be highly detrimental. One of the consistent historical trends that really is 5,000 years old is that underemployed males and those combined with being under the age of 35, in other words, young males who do not have enough to do, often lead to very bad things. In a famous quote, Ruth Bader Ginsburg stated, when I'm sometimes asked when there will be enough women on the Supreme Court and I say when there are nine, people are shocked, but there'd been nine men and nobody's ever raised a question about that, unquote. This quote is one of those, those things that sounds incisive, funny, and rousing, but is actually dumb and stupid. The fact that there were nine men and no women by Ginsburg's testament indicated a wrong thing. It indicated discrimination. It indicated that the justices were selected by gender and not their individual capabilities. I would argue that Amy Coney Barrett is undoubtedly a better justice than David Souter ever was, but I would struggle to think of anyone better, man or woman, than Clarence Thomas. We are not there yet, but the pursuit for gender equality enabled by the technology of the information age should not lead to counter- discrimination. The gun helped eliminate a hierarchical feudal system that meant no peasant, however capable, hardworking, or intelligent, could move up. But try telling to a mother of a victim of gun violence, or view the horrors of the Somme of World War I, that the gun was a net good. The advent of the information age can be different and represent a net good for all we just need to be very careful about managing this seismic change. This is Bell Avis. Thank you for listening.